The title of the sermon is The Coming Kingdom Conditions of Joy, Longer Lifespans, Work, and Harmony. Just one more time, let's pray and ask for God to teach us through His Word. Father, we come now to the time when you speak through your word and through the preaching of the word of God. Great God, we pray that you would make your word clear. It's a long chapter, Lord. It's a very detailed chapter. And every one of us can say, Lord, we need your help because we've not been to this kingdom yet. And so as we look forward to the future end times kingdom, which will come, Lord, we ask for your grace. That, Lord, not only would we understand intellectually the word, but that you would give us a greater love and hunger and devotion to our King, the Lord Jesus. May we love him even more. May we obey him even more. May we delight in speaking about him even more. So teach us, we pray, open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John Walverd served as the professor of Dallas Theological Seminary for over 50 years. He taught in the area of systematic theology, and he wrote about systematic theology, and he taught about systematic theology, but by his own confession, one of his favorite topics to write about and think about and teach on was the topic of end times, or in theological terms, that would be eschatology. Here's what he wrote, quote, The reign of Jesus Christ on earth during the millennium Featuring as it does the righteous and universal government over all nations will affect every phase of our lives. Imagine all of the effects of the reign of Christ which will be manifested in the righteous government and the spiritual realm which will occupy the entire world. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ will have extensive impact on the economic and the social aspects of life on earth in the future. And he goes on in this writing to specify just a couple of ways that life will be altered. Let me just mention them. First, he says, consider that there will be universal justice and universal peace. Can you imagine Can you imagine a day when there will be no more wars, no more threats of war, no more rumors of war, no more military needed? The beneficial effect that that will have on the social and economic life of the world is going to be amazing. He mentioned, second of all, imagine the general prosperity that will come in the kingdom conditions. He says, imagine a world of widespread peace and widespread justice, of spiritual blessing, of bountiful supplies of food in every land. It will result in prosperity such as like the world has never known before. Imagine third what he mentions, a time of health and healing. 
Can, can you imagine a, a time when Messiah comes again and rules on this world when there will be healing from sickness, which will characterize his reign? The brokenhearted will be comforted and joy will replace all sadness and mourning. Longevity will apparently characterize the human race. No longer will there be infant mortality. No longer will there be abortion. No longer will there be those who die at the age of their youth. But there will be prolonged lifespans. The the freedom from the human ills that so common occupy this present world will be gone. And there will be a new time of health and healing in the coming kingdom. And then Walvoord writes this. In summary, taken as a whole, the social and the economic conditions of the future worldwide kingdom, it indicates a golden age that all people dream of. Now, we live in a day, we live in a, in a time where there are all kinds of people who are social reformists wanting to bring in a golden age of worldwide peace. But worldwide peace is never, ever going to come through human effort. Never going to come through human effort. It's only going to come by the immediate presence and power of God. It's only going to come by the righteous government of Christ the King. Oh, there will be a time of peace on earth, but it won't come the way that the world thinks it will come. It will come by the power and wisdom And sovereignty of King Jesus. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine a time where where there is a worldwide global context of righteousness, love, peace, security, and prosperity? I mean, right now, you and I, we, we see injustice, we see war, we see hatred, we see killing, we see violence and bloodshed. But in the future kingdom, can you imagine when there will be beautiful order, divine peace, global harmony? Can you imagine? Now, you and I, we, we understand shortages. We understand when people talk about those who stole from them. Living in a society of lies and deceit and cheating. But in the kingdom, there will be none of that. Pure prosperity from God over the whole world. Now you and I understand what it is to have illness and disease. We, we are acquainted in our lives with death. We, we know that, we see that, we understand that. But in the future kingdom, can you imagine a time when there will be healing, wellness, health, longevity on earth? Can you imagine such a period? Imagine a kingdom, a new order, a, an earthly dominion where one king rules the whole world. One king rules the whole world. He is Jesus Christ. And he does so with perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect order, and perfect peace. Let me just, still by way of introduction, whet your appetite a little more for this. It is, first of all, an earthly kingdom. According to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 11. Second, it's a worldwide kingdom. 
according to Daniel 2 and Psalm 72. It is a righteous kingdom, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 32. It is a Satan-eliminated kingdom, Revelation chapter 20. It is, according to Ezekiel 37, a necessary kingdom. It actually has to happen for God to make his name known on the earth among the nations through the Jews. It is a peaceful kingdom, Isaiah 11. It is a joyous kingdom, Isaiah 35. It is, get this, a truth-loving kingdom, Micah chapter 4. It is a Christ-enthroned kingdom, Psalm 110. And it's going to be a renewed kingdom. And that's what our chapter talks about today. It's a renewed kingdom. Now, where we are today in Isaiah chapter 65, you probably got the email, you probably read ahead and prepared, and I bet there was a time where you scratch your head and you thought, how is he going to cover all this material, first of all? And then you thought, what does some of this mean, second of all? I thought the same thing when I read the chapter the first time as well. But I want you to know, after study and prayer and understanding of this text, these chapters, Isaiah 65 and next week, chapter 66, they provide some of the clearest chapters in all of the Bible on what life in the future kingdom will be like. These are amazing chapters. They are clear chapters. They are profound chapters. And they are prophetic chapters because they tell us about the future. What will the thousand-year millennial kingdom be like? Now, you'll remember, just again to kind of bring us where we are in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 40 to 48? God gave us a nine-chapter portion of Isaiah saying that God is going to deliver his people physically out of exile. He would do that to the people of Israel through Cyrus. And then we saw nine chapters, Isaiah 49 to 57, how God would deliver his people spiritually through the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. Well, then Isaiah 58, all the way to the end, chapter 66, is God saying, I will deliver you in the end from the curse. In the future kingdom. So I'm not just delivering you from exile. And yes, I will deliver you from sin. But then God says, I'm going to deliver you from the curse. From the curse. The effects of the sin that you and I are aware of. And we read the headlines and we see all that is going on. There's coming a day when there will be a renewed and a restored and a divine kingdom in this world. And we've been looking at that. Isaiah chapter 60 talked about kingdom conditions and kingdom living. And then chapter 61 talked about the Savior, the King over the kingdom. And then Isaiah 62 talked about the city of Jerusalem in the coming kingdom. And then Isaiah 63 talked about the return of the King and how we would bring judgment for those who will not enter the kingdom. And then last week in chapter 64... We saw Isaiah's kingdom praying, desperate, urgent, begging God for revival, for God to rend the heavens and come down. Where we are today is God's response to that prayer. Last week, we saw Isaiah's prayer, chapter 64. Now, in chapter 65 and 66, here is God responding to Isaiah's prayer. Prayer, but it's a response that you might not 
expect. The section that we want to look at today in Isaiah 65 is going to give us sort of two main headings for our outline. And if you're taking notes, I want to give these to you at the very outset so that you can write them down because it's a long chapter with a lot of details, but hopefully the two main headings will keep it very simple for us. The first answer that God gives, number one in your outline, is you need to mourn. Mourn, M-O-U-R-N. Mourn because God gives an honest assessment of corrupt people. There's a mourning. There's a sadness. There's a brokenness in the opening 16 verses where God is going to give an honest assessment of his corrupt people. But then, not just mourn, number two, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Number two, we're going to look at marvel. Marvel. Why? Because God will give the hopeful details of the coming kingdom. We ought to marvel. We ought to expect. We ought to anticipate. We ought to get excited because of the hopeful details of the coming kingdom. So let's begin. Let's begin in your outline. Number one, let's, let's look at what God does in response to Isaiah's prayer. Number one, mourn. Mourn. Because God is going to give an honest assessment of corrupt people. Follow with me as I read beginning in verse 1. God says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call to my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and they spend the night in secret places. They eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers. Together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, as one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah, and even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for the flocks and valley of Achor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you... Who forsake the Lord, you who forget my holy mountain, you set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear and you did evil in my sight and you chose that in which I did not delight. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a great shout, but you will cry aloud with a heavy heart and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. What is, what is, what is God doing? God is responding to Isaiah's prayer. Remember last week, Isaiah prayed this prayer for revival. It includes desperation. It includes humiliation. It includes submission. God, would you rend the heavens? Would you come down? Would you revive us and save us? And now God responds and he says, hold on. Let me tell you just how corrupt my people have become. Let me just tell you how sinful, how corrupt the people have become. If you're taking notes, just jot down these S words. It'll help keep things in order. Number one, God is going to emphasize their stubbornness. Their stubbornness. This is the people of Israel who say, God, I don't want you. God, I don't want what you have to give me. And we hear that all the time. Every week on the streets, you offer them a gospel tract. You want to give the gospel to them. You want to share Christ with them. You want to open your Bible and give hope to a perishing world. And people often say, no thanks, I'm good. I don't want it. I don't need it. Verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. And I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation who did not call on my name. What's the point of this? God says, my plan is for the Gentiles to come in as well. Not just for you, Jewish people, nation of Israel, but for all of the nations. It's like God opens up his arms, verse 2, and he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10, speaking of the Jewish people. Can you imagine God saying, my arms are out? Come to me. Return to me. Repent of your sin. Come home and be forgiven. And sinners say, no, God, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I, 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 don't, I don't want this religion. I don't need you. And look at how God describes them at the end of verse 2. Do you see it there? I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. They walk in the way which is not good. Get this. They follow their own heart. Follow your own heart. That's what people are telling people to do today. Jeremiah 17.9 says, your heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul quotes this in Romans 10 to show just how sinful and corrupt people are. Why? Because we love to follow our own hearts. But when you're following your own heart and doing what you want to do, you can rest assured you're not following in God's path. 
You see, the Bible says, don't live by your own thinking. Don't order your life by your own feelings. Don't live by however you want to live. That's the highway to hell. That's one of Satan's greatest tricks in our world. Be who you want to be. Follow your heart. Be who you want to become. Identify how you want to identify. Just follow your heart. That's the whisper of Satan. And God says, that's the problem with my people. They are following their own thoughts. And God just said, it's not good. Verse 3. They are a people who continually provoke me to my face. They offer sacrifices in gardens and they burn incense on bricks. Verse 4. They sit among graves. They spend the night in the secret places. They eat the swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Now, hold on a sec. That's a lot of historical detail that I want to explain to you real quickly. All this means is they are provoking God. Because when it says in verse 4, they're sitting among graves, this is the Hebrew idea of necromancy, the occult. When it says in verse 4, they are eating swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, that's magical potions. These are the people of Israel who are saying, God, I, I don't need you right now. God, I don't want to follow you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the occult. I'm going to do my magical rites. Uh, uh, verse 3, I'm going to offer sacrifices in my gardens. And I'm going to burn incense on the bricks that I've made, not in the temple that God has decreed. This is a sinful, stubborn people. Isaiah prayed, bring revival. And God says, hold on. I've held out my hands all day long to a disobedient people and they're stubborn. Second, not only stubborn, but the second S, they are self-righteous. Verse 5, look at what my people say, God says. Verse 5, they say, keep to yourself. Don't come near me, for I am holier than you. You're too bad. You're too sinful. You're too corrupt. I'm better than you. Can you imagine God's people saying that? This is the stench of self-righteousness. So bad is it, verse 5, God says, this kind of thinking is smoke in my nostrils. It's a fire that burns all the day. So much so in verse 6 that God will repay them for their self-righteousness. Don't come to me, I'm better than you. Well, look at how dirty they are. Look at how sinful they live. Look at how they talk. Look at how they dress can't believe they would do that. Don't defile me. Don't touch me. I'm better than you. I'm more religious than you. I'm more godly than you. You can just almost hear that kind of thinking. You can almost hear the people in Isaiah's time just sort of saying that. But wait a minute. When was the last time you and I had that thought? Man, that... That person over there, man, I can't believe they would do that. 
I can't believe they would talk like, I can't believe they would act like that, speak like that, dress like that, look like that. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 18 and verse 9 about those who were self-righteous and trusting in themselves. And really, ultimately, according to Jesus's parable, they were praying to themselves. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Look at how sinful he is. I fast twice a week. Look at all that I do. That self-righteousness that was here in Isaiah's time was so sinful before the Lord. God is saying to Isaiah, yes, yes, I hear your prayer, but let me tell you how sinful the people are. Number one, they're stubborn. Number two, they're self-righteous. Now, in your outline, another S. Number three, they are scorners. Scorners. These are people that say, God, I hear what you say, but I'm going to live however I want. This is when you, when you go to that person whom you love. Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a relative. And, and you see the way that they've lived and you open your Bible and say, look, I care for you, I love you, but you know what? You're in a dangerous path of life. And they just sort of blow you off. And they say, no, I'm going to live however I want to live. Look at verse 7. That's right here. Both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their father together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains. They have scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. They worship God wherever they want. They worship God however they want. They worship God whenever they want. And God says, your worship stinks. They're stubborn, they're self-righteous, they're scorners. Well, now, now in verses 8 and following, it's almost like God is going to go back and forth between the righteous and the wicked. And then he's going to describe the righteous, and then he's going to describe the wicked. He's going to go back and forth. And he's going to describe them with a fourth S. They are stiff-necked. They just forget God. They've hardened their hearts. They don't respond to God. Look at verse 12. Let's just begin in verse 12 right here. I will destine you for the sword and all of you who bow down to the slaughter because God says, I called you, but you didn't answer. Now, hold on a sec. You probably said that to somebody this week. I called you, but you didn't answer. God calls, he calls, he calls. I spoke, but you didn't hear, verse 12. And you did evil in my sight, and you chose that in which I did not delight. It's like, it's like God says, like I'm calling you. And it's calling, and it's ringing, and it's ringing, and it's ringing, but you're not picking up, you're not answering. God calls through his word. By his spirit in our hearts, all by his powerful grace. And they refused God. They rejected God. They rebelled against God. And they just replaced God. 
So God is describing his people Israel and how stubborn and how sinful and how corrupt they are. Let let me illustrate it like this. Have you ever seen somebody, maybe at a park or at a dog park in your neighborhood, and they're trying to call their dog to come to them, and the dog wants nothing to do with it? And their arms are stretched out, and and the person is constantly calling out to their dog. They might even have a little high-pitched voice to call out to their dog. And they're motioning, come on, come on, and yet the dog is stubborn. And the dog will even sit down, and then the dog might even close its eyes. And the dog completely disregards the owner. You've seen it. That's how Israel is presented right here to the Lord. I call, I call, I call, but you've rejected me. And we see here in these verses, verses 8 to 10, God has a remnant, a remnant of those who follow him. Do you see it there in verse 8? Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found by the cluster, as one says, don't destroy it, for there is benefit in it, I will act on behalf of my servants. Even though the whole cluster might be so bad, there might be a few good grapes in it. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, an heir of my mountains for Judah. Verse 10, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for my people who seek me. Yes, God has a people who seek him and a people who follow him. But, verse 11, look at verse 11. Look at those who forsake the Lord. I mean, God doesn't shy away from using language that is stern, verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, you forget my holy mountain. You set a table for fortune. That was one of their gods. And you fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. That was another one of their idol gods. God says, you do that? You're you're going to commit idolatry? Verse 12, I will destine you for the sword. Wow. Look at the contrast, verse 13. Notice the contrast that God says. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, my servants are going to eat, but you who forsake the Lord, you're going to be hungry. And my servants are going to drink, but you're going to be thirsty. And my servants are going to rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully, but you will cry out with a heavy heart. Which do you want to be? Now, verse 16. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Because the one who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. You follow the Lord, you'll be blessed. Don't follow your own heart. Follow the Lord. Don't follow your own intuitions. Follow the revelation that God has given in the word. And you'll be blessed of the Lord. You'll be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And they are hidden from my sight. Can you imagine a day when all former troubles are gone? No more guilty conscience. No more plaguing memories. You've got a cleared memory. That's the hinge that now opens the door for Isaiah to talk about the kingdom. 
So in verses 1 to 16, you and I, if you're taking notes, you have written down the first heading to mourn. This is God's honest assessment of corrupt people. And oh, how they needed a savior. Oh, how they needed a deliverer. Oh, how God wanted to redeem them. And guess what? There are so many people today who live stubborn lives, selfish lives, self-righteous lives. And yet the Lord says, my arms are held out all day long. Come to the Lord. If that's you today and you're living a selfish, self-righteous, stiff-necked life. And you're an enemy of God and you're not living for him and you're living an idolatrous life and you give no thought for God. God's arms are open. Come to him. Come and receive mercy. Come and be forgiven. Come and and have a cleared memory. Come and be forgiven of the guilt of your sin. Come and let the burden of all of your sins be rolled away onto Christ. That is the opening few verses Describing the corrupt people. But now, now we come to the second heading. Look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter. If you're taking notes, number two, it's the word marvel. Marvel, because God gives hopeful details of the coming kingdom. You say, Jeff, how do you know the future? I say, I don't. But God has revealed it in the word. So we're going to read the word and we're going to study the hopeful details of the coming kingdom. Verse 16, what did God say? The former troubles are forgotten. Do you long for that day? I long for that day. Former troubles, the former pains, the things that haunt you and plague you and they're in your mind, they'll be gone. Tell me more. What's that going to be like? Tell me more about that time. Tell me more about what that is going to be like. Verse 17, look at the first couple of words in your English. For behold. Do you see that there in your Bible? For behold. This is Isaiah saying, let me explain. Let me explain what I just said. I know that I told you that your former troubles are going to be forgotten and they're going to be hidden from my sight. Let me explain something awesome. It's the same idea of Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when the angel sent by God came to the shepherds out in the wilderness and they said, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today there has been born for you a Savior. Marvel! God is doing something. Now, what we're going to look at here for every verse, every verse for the whole remainder of the chapter, we are dealing with the time of the future kingdom. Jesus called this period a time of regeneration or a time of renewal in Matthew 19. Peter in Acts 3 called this future period the restoration of all things. John in Revelation 20 tells us how long the period lasts, and that's 1,000 years. Now, before we kind of get into the details of the kingdom, I guess we have to ask the question, who's going to be in the kingdom? Who's going to be in the kingdom? Well, first of all, all the Old Testament saints will be in the kingdom, according to Daniel 7, 27. The New Testament apostles will be there, according to Matthew 19, 28. 
And then you and I, all church age saints, will be in the kingdom, according to 2 Timothy 2.12. And, and then even tribulation believers who make it through to the end, they will enter into the kingdom, Matthew 25, 21-23 says. And we can't neglect number five, Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be there as well. Now, here's what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is going to launch you and me into the future, and we're going, to, we're going to look at the kingdom. We're going to look at kingdom conditions where you're going to scratch your head and you're going to say, yeah, but, but that's not going on right now, and it's hard for me to understand all of that. It's kind of like this. Imagine if you were living in the 1100s. About a thousand years ago, let's say, and you were talking with some fellow believers. They're called the Waldensians. The Waldensians lived in the area of Italy and France. They were strong believers in a time where there weren't many believers in Europe at that time. Imagine that you were standing there and talking with some of the Waldensians, and you were going to explain to them a thousand years ago what times would be like today. Mr. Waldensian. We have something that we launch into space. We put it on a rocket with enough fuel. It's called propellant. And it boosts them above Earth's atmosphere. What? Yeah, and, and there's even something called the Internet. Yeah, it provides by a network of servers that provide and transfer data via high-speed cable, satellite, wireless connections. It's amazing. And now they're really confused. And then you say, no, 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 no. There's something called an automobile. No, no, no. A self-driving automobile. Yeah, through a mixture of sensors and software and radar and GPS and laser beams and cameras, it monitors road conditions to operate and navigate a vehicle without a driver. And you could get on something that we call an airplane. And you could, you could fly from London all the way to Sydney in a day. In a day. And then... We have something that we call public transportation. Public transportation, it's this mechanism that carries people and it transports them from one place to another. So in China, there's a, cha a train that travels at 286 miles per hour. And in Japan, there's one that goes more than 300 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. And then there's this little thing, it fits in your pocket, you've all got it. We call it a cell phone. A cell phone. You can actually text a friend all the way around the world in a moment of time. When a text message is written, it's transmitted as a binary code using a particular frequency of radio waves specific to that user. The signal is received by a nearby cell tower, which is then directed to another tower for the intended recipient. Now they're really confused. What is all of that. But it's real. It, it's true. They would have a hard time understanding that if you explained that a thousand years ago. Isaiah is saying this seems a little bit too good to be true, but it's real. It's real. 
Imagine what Christ's kingdom of righteousness will be like. Church family, you know me well. I have two main headings, but you're not deceived because now I have eight subpoints. Okay? What is the future millennial kingdom conditions like? Eight little phrases that our text is going to bring out here. Number one. It is an entirely new realm. It's an entirely new realm. It's it's called in verse 17, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, don't confuse that with Revelation chapter 21, when the Lord says, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. That's true, but these are different events. Isaiah is not talking about the eternal state. I'll show you why in a minute. But John is talking about the eternal state. What's the point? This is a work of God. And it's a new realm. And it's a new way of living. It's so different. It's new. It's something that only God could do. Former things will not be remembered. No bad memories. No lingering guilt. No what-if contemplations. No haunting failures. It is a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, verse 17 says. Did you hear that? Former things will not come to mind. Forgotten. Past failures, haunting sins, not brought to your heart again. Entirely new realm created by God. The second distinctive feature of the future kingdom is not just a new realm, but second, it is a joyous city. It is spoken of as a joyous city. Now, look with me at verse 18. Now, I want you to see this in your Bible because you and I, you can walk by, you can walk in downtown St. Louis, you can walk on a college campus and people look like they're sad. Look at verse 18. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. When God remakes this beautiful city of Jerusalem in the worldwide kingdom, it is going to be a place of joy. A place of gladness. Jerusalem will be the center. We might call it the capital of the worldwide kingdom. It is the capital of the kingdom which will be the center point of joy. And God says, be glad and rejoice in what I am making. I am creating Jerusalem for rejoicing. God says in verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. What a place that'll be. Not only will the kingdom be a new realm, number one, a joyous city, number two, but let's go just beyond a joyous city, number three. This is a culture of joy. The future millennial kingdom is a worldwide culture of joy. Joy! Verse 19. 
I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Talk about kingdom living. Talk about total happiness. Talk about divine joy. Now, you and I don't know that by experience yet. But one day, the the dim shadow that you and I are reading in verse 19 will be a full-color reality in this world. Do you see it there in verse 19? The voice of weeping and crying will be gone. You've wept, you've cried, you've mourned, you've been sad. In the future kingdom for God's people, gone. In the future millennial kingdom, number four, the fourth certain reality is this, prolonged lifespan. You scratch your head and think, what? What do you mean prolonged lifespan? That sounds a little weird. This is one reason why we know we're not talking about the eternal state. Because though there will be death, It will be a prolonged lifespan. Look at verse 20. It's right here in the Bible. Verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred and the one who doesn't reach the age of a hundred will be thought of accursed. I mean, when was the last time you read a news headline? Somebody died at the age of a hundred and you think, what happened? They were so young. No, but in the future kingdom, one who doesn't reach the age of a hundred will be thought of as a curse. We live in times of infant mortality. We live in a world that loves, tragically, loves abortion, the killing of children. Not in the kingdom. None of that will be in the kingdom. There will be no premature death in the kingdom. Infants will live to maturity. And the elderly will be considered young. And there's no evidence anywhere in the context to take these words symbolically or allegorically or figuratively. But there will be death. I mean, do you see it right here in the middle of verse 20? For the youth will die at the age of a hundred. Well, it can't be referring to the eternal state. There's no death there. But it's not now. Because these aren't describing times in which we're living. It is an intermediate state. Before eternal state. And yet after the times in which we are living is the thousand-year kingdom. Dying at the age of a hundred will be thought of as cursed. Longer lifespan will be present, but death will also still be present. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? A fifth description of the future kingdom in verse 21, there will be pleasant delights. Pleasant delights. Verse 21 The people will build houses and they will inhabit them and they will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. People are going to work. People are going to build. People are going to live life to the fullest and they're going to plant and they're going to work the field. It's going to be garden of Eden like conditions. 
and they will eat the fruit. Not another person will eat it, but they will eat and benefit from their own labor. Just maybe turn over a few pages to Amos chapter 9. Amos gives one of the clearest descriptions on the future restoration and the pleasant delights of the future kingdom. Look at the end of the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, God says, I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and I will wall up its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, so that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will Rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make their gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their own land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is real. This is true. You and I might scratch our head thinking, what do you mean prolonged life, pleasant delights? But that's what God says. It's what's going to happen. Times in the kingdom. Number six, the sixth description of the future kingdom, fruitful work. Fruitful work. You ever heard of, does there even exist a bad business deal in our culture? Not in the kingdom. Is there ever fraud? Not in the kingdom. Is there ever theft? Or someone who steals from another? Not in the kingdom. Look at verse 22. They will not build, but then another inhabits. And they will not plant, and then another eats. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people be. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. This is fruitful, honest work that is rewarded. You plant, you work, you enjoy your labor, and you benefit, and you enjoy what you've worked for. By the way, this is another hint that we're not in the eternal state yet. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 23. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children. Well, in heaven, there's no bearing of children. But in the future kingdom, there will be a lot of bearing of children. And, and, and there won't be bearing of children for calamity. Look at the end of verse 23. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Can you imagine a time with godly children, godly posterity, blessed of the Lord, widespread global across the world? Next, number seven. What will the kingdom conditions be like? Number seven, divine Fellowship. Divine fellowship. You see it there in verse 24. It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. What is God saying? Before you're even done praying, I'm going to answer it. 
Divine fellowship, closer fellowship, nearness to God, praying to God, immediate answer from God. Can you imagine such divine fellowship that you'll enjoy in the kingdom? One more. Number eight. What will the kingdom be like? Well, we have seen, number one, that it will be a new realm, a joyous city, a culture of joy, prolonged lifespan, pleasant delights, fruitful work, divine fellowship. Now, number eight, get this. It'll be a world of animal harmony. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. What? What do you mean a wolf and a lamb? Oftentimes people think the lion and the lamb. It's a good idea, but the biblical phrase is the wolf and the lamb. Well, they could lie down together now, but only one would get up. But in the kingdom, they will lie down together in harmony. I think in verse 25, there might even be an allusion to the Garden of Eden. When it says the dust will be the serpent's food, no evil, no harm at all on God's holy mountain. There was a man a couple of generations ago who was teaching on the future kingdom and he came to this verse and he was teaching a seminary class and there was a young man, kind of a kind of a prideful man in that seminary class and kind of arrogantly raised his hand up very high in the air and he said, Professor, who ever heard of a lion eating straw? Everybody knows that a lion doesn't eat straw. Kind of laughing at his classmates that he's finally stumped the professor. And in a very lighthearted, in a very loving way, the professor responded, Young man, If you can make a lion, then you could make him eat straw. Because the one who created the lion will equip him to eat straw when he wants him to do it. So imagine kingdom conditions when the sharp fang and the bloody claw will no longer rule animal life. But the law of the jungle will be changed to conform to the harmonious rule. Of the peaceful king. Do you see the end of chapter 65? They will do no evil or harm. On my holy mountain. What a God. What a promise. What clarity God gives in the word. So let's just sort of review some of this. What do kingdom conditions look like in our chapter? There will be a renewed mind that will replace former bad memories. There will be joy that will replace weeping and crying. There will be longer lifespan that will replace sorrow and death. There will be answered prayer that replaces God's previous silence. Universal peace that replaces violence. I don't know about you, but you hear that in Isaiah 65 and you think, Lord, let your kingdom come. This is not a world of peace. But that world of peace is coming. So what would God want? What, What would God want of you and me at this point? He would want us to hope for this kingdom. 
He, he would want us to think about this kingdom. He would want you and I to talk about this kingdom. He would want you and I to ponder the realities of this kingdom. He would want us to get excited about this kingdom. Doug Bookman was saying to me one time, he said, Jeff, I don't think we think enough about the reality of the coming kingdom. It's a reality. We ought to be waiting for the coming of the Lord. Coming of the Lord. And that ought to dramatically affect how we live our lives now. So you get to work tomorrow. You go on the computer tomorrow. And you get in your email inbox all of the headlines that's been going on. And people at work tell you what's been going on. You see about all the violence and all the stuff that's been going on worldwide, globally. Remember, this world is not what Isaiah has described for the coming kingdom. But one day there is coming a reality. When Jesus will come down from heaven to earth, he will judge his enemies and he will establish a 1,000 year kingdom where there will be peace on earth. And the knowledge of the Lord and the love of God and a righteous kingdom that will then continue forever and ever and ever. To close, I want to tell you about Augustus Toplady. Augustus Toplady was a pastor, a theologian, and he wrote a few hymns while he was at it. In one of his writings, he said this, quote, I am one of those old-fashioned people who believe in the doctrine of the thousand-year millennium. There will be two distinct resurrections of the dead. One resurrection will be the righteous when they will enter the kingdom. But then there will be another resurrection at the end of the kingdom for all non-believers when they will rise to meet the Lord at the great white throne. But in the kingdom of the 1,000 years... He said, I believe Jesus will reign in person on the earth over the kingdom of the righteous. But as a pastor and as a theologian and as a hymn writer, he knew and he believed the only way for you to get into that kingdom is you must have faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he wrote it in these words. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given in Isaiah about the future kingdom. Even though we have sinned, we are undeserving. We deserve punishment in hell. Thank you that you have held out your hands to a disobedient people. And for those who come to Christ by faith, we are welcomed and received and forgiven. In Jesus' name.